You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to this week's America's Web Radio program. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. And I'll repeat as I have for the last several months, we are no longer talking about free market healthcare because this presidency, this administration is so far from free markets that we've got to look at social issues. We need to take a look at this administration and what it's doing. Well, of course, the latest thing in the news this week is the fall of Afghanistan. So I want to talk about the Biden administration. I want to talk about where we're going, maybe contrasting with some of the things that happened in the Trump administration. But for all of you out there paying any attention at all, you know that this administration has got a border meltdown that's going on. There's no control over our southern border, nor does there seem to be any interest in controlling our southern border. There's an economic meltdown because of the flooding of the economy with cash, which gives us a short-term high, but we all know that that leads to inflation, to all sorts of displacements of our economy. We have people staying at home because they're getting more from the government than if we went out to work, so our number of people who are employed is still $7 million or 7 million people below what it was before we got into the pandemic. We've got the Afghan meltdown that I just mentioned a minute ago. There seems to be total incompetence by this administration in the withdrawal. I don't think anybody disagrees that after 20 years, uh, we should get out of there and let the Afghans fight for themselves. 300,000 Afghans were trained with some of the best equipment And there's about 50,000 that are still fighting. But as soon as this administration said, we're just going to pull out, many of the others fled, fled the country to get away from being killed, uh, kind of fled away from any fighting that they would otherwise be doing. The president of Afghanistan left. So our exit strategy was completely, completely performed an incompetent, almost malicious intentional way. You can't get any worse than what's been done with the Afghan situation. And there are now 10,000 Americans and supporters at least, if not 20,000, that are subject to being killed, beheaded. And worst of all, from my layman's viewpoint, Afghanistan is right near Pakistan, where Osama bin Laden was hiding out. And guess what? If the Taliban moves into Pakistan at some point in the future... Pakistan's got a nuclear weapon. Boy, isn't that a great combination? Well, of course, the other meltdown that's going on in this country is the meltdown of law and order in our cities and the lack of prosecution of thefts that are going on in many states like California, but elsewhere around the country where district attorneys have been elected on the basis that they're just going to release people. They're not going to prosecute. So we've got this terrible tsunami of meltdowns that's going on, the border, the economy, Afghanistan, law and order, and many others, I'm sure. So that's my take. I want to talk to one of the brightest minds around, one of the best conservative minds around that can put things very succinctly, and that's Victor David Hansen. He's one of my heroes, if you will, of putting together things in a logical way of explaining what's going on, of stepping back and having a a perspective, not just from the conservative side, but really understanding what the other side is doing 
not just to say they're being bad or they're doing the wrong things, but explaining why he believes they're doing something wrong and are being incompetent, maybe purposefully, but he's going to try to point out some real details. So I want to begin this program now, after this introduction, of asking Dr. Victor David Hansen, what is your take on the Biden administration? I just gave you mine. Well, I, I try to just look at empirical reactions. Uh, poll-wise, there's a, he had a honeymoon, obviously, after the Trump final month or two, but that has gone down a little bit from 55% to about 52. And some, you know, the conservative polls, he's below 50, but who, they're, they're probably a little bit more partisan. What I'm looking at is that um, the expectations that some of us warned others in the middle about, and some on the never Trump right, that Joe Biden was not Joe Biden from Scranton, the old uh, moderate Democrat, but rather either in his older age felt that he had been the understudy of Barack Obama, that he would be a one-term president, that he was underappreciated, and that the way to square all those circles was to be the most radically left vessel since FDR. And that's what I think we've seen. And that means the border is now open. Uh, he's recalibrating the Middle East entirely. Um, he's got the biggest array of tax increases and new regulations we've seen in a long time. Culturally, he's weighed in on unnecessarily and gratuitously so, whether it's moving the All-Star game to Denver on specious grounds. He's commented on voting uh, laws that are actually more liberal than his own state and has called them Jim Crow. So he's wading in as a social justice warrior, even as the concerns about his cognitive abilities have increased because he was the longest, he had the longest hiatus of press conferences of any president. Well, isn't it not just the timing between the press conferences, but his accessibility, his answering questions off the cuff, his answering questions, um, you know, when he's prepared, he can read off a teleprompter, but when he's not prepared, he doesn't want to take any questions or any significant questions from the audience. So it leaves the American public with the idea that he really isn't well prepared. Is that your point? Prepping that what I'm talking about. Yeah. When you had Obama and you had Trump, they were fair game 24-7. So when they got into a helicopter, when they were in a car, when they walked anywhere, they answered almost anything, any time. Trump, to his own uh, probably fault. But Obama did too. And these are scheduled, really scheduled uh, press conferences. And a lot of the times the, the questions are known in advance, if not scripted. And even had, as you know, from this first press conference, he had the pictures of the people who he was going to call to, the names, the order, et cetera. So, so now we have a president, so-called Lunch Pale Joe from Scranton, Pennsylvania, the moderate. But he's never really been all that moderate. But is he as radical as people now see him to be and what some of these policies are? Or is it just incompetence? He is radical. And I think his point of view is if I was Joe Biden and I would put words into his mouth, he's the following. I'm only going to be, I'm not going to run for president. Well, no matter what I say at 82, I've only got four years. 
I don't really care about the polls. I don't really care about the midterms. I've got 24 months to ram through an agenda that is the most progressive, the most radical, and will give me the most legacy or bang for the buck in the next 100 years. Well, Professor Hansen, that's a very interesting perspective. So how is he going to ram through this radical agenda? How is that going to work as he tries to cram as much as he can into this four-year period of time that he has? I'm going to do it policy and process. So I can weigh in on social issues woke. I can call people racist about uh, federalizing the voting statutes of 50 states, which is really unconstitutional. It's only extraordinary, like the 18-year-old voter women, but not to micromanage voting. That's not in the Constitution. It says that shall be left to the states. And I am going to stop all new energy development. That was a big plus for the U.S. I'm going to wade in on transgenderism. I'm going to do all of this stuff. And we have a year of pent-up demand. Trump inflated the economy with $3, million, $3 trillion of stimulus. I came in and added another $2 trillion. I want another $2 trillion. We've got the debt up from when Trump started about $23 trillion. It's going to be $30 trillion. We've got zero interest rates, and we've got a year of pent-up demand. And now it's unleashing because of the quote-unquote vaccination. And we're going to have the biggest boom we've seen, uh, and we've already seen it, uh, as far as housing uh, sales, car sales, uh, unemployment dropping. And so I think he feels that he's going to take credit for this natural boom and get through this legislation. And that's the policy. The process is to do that. We've never had a president that was that ambitious and radical on either side without a supermajority. And that is they had a huge landslide victory like LBJ did or Barack Obama did in the Electoral College. Or they had a huge Senate majority like Obama did, supermajority in 2009 when he pushed through Obamacare. Or they had a huge House more. Joe Biden is locked 50-50. He has the smallest Democratic majority in this last 50 years. He won or lost the Electoral College by a select 45,000 votes in different states. He had no mandate. And so he wants to change the process. And what do I mean by that? I think they're going to try to get rid of the Senate filibuster. If they can, they would probably want to admit at least one state, maybe Puerto Rico, maybe Washington, D.C. They can get around the Constitution. There are ways of doing it. I think it's unconstitutional, but they can get around it. That would give them two more senators. I think they're really seriously talking, as I said, about radicalizing what we've never seen before, the voting systems so that it's primarily makes irrelevant voting day, election day, and American Hallmark Day. We, we went up to 62% of votes cast. We've never done that before. The error rate or the challenge rate or the inauthentic vote rate dropped from a normal 5% of non-election day voting down to less than 1%. It's about 7 or 8 million votes that would have been thrown out under any other system. So that is a radical thing. I think we're, they're, they're discussing maybe 15 Supreme Court justices. That's not in the Constitution. So they can, if they get 51 senators, they can do that with Kamala Harris's vote if they don't have a filibuster. They've talked about uh, 
statehood for two states, packing the court into the filibuster. And uh, there's something called the National Voters Compact to get rid of the Electoral College. Get, amending the Constitution requires three quarters of the states and two thirds of the continent. They're not going to get that, but they can go to individual states and say, vote to accept the popular vote and not your own in-state tally. And if you do that and we get 270 votes, the majority of Electoral College, the Electoral College exists in name, but it's inert. And they're almost there. They've got about 85%. So these are structural changes that they feel will make us more like an Athenian democracy rather than a Roman Republic as envisioned by the, the founders. And that would mean that they could institutionalize a lot of the, the things they're going to try to do in the next two years. Professor, what a great overview of the Biden administration and an analysis helps us all understand the policy and procedures that are going through the mind or likely going through the mind of this president to fundamentally change our country in ways that would empower one party over the other where, where we would not have the kind of open dialogue, uh, diversity of views and opinions and allowing the American people to sort of weigh in. Just rush this stuff through. I don't care about polls. I don't care about the American people because I'm not going to be around here that much longer anyway. So let's take a quick break and I want to come back and I want to continue this line of understanding this administration. So we'll be right back. Hey folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember folks, I'm not angry, I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Once again, Healthcare Insight is off course in that we're talking about social issues. We're talking about political issues and until we get some of these issues resolved and the listeners of this program, the listeners on the podcast, and there's an understanding that this is a different kind of administration over the next four years, uh, we're looking at various very radical ideas that was just described in the last segment of this program by Professor Hansen. Now, Professor Hansen, we know some of those things like adding states and packing the court have not been done yet. But what's the difference between this crowd and what we might have heard in the past on ideas and issues that never really had a chance of getting implemented? We've never had a serious group of people say they were going to do that. Let's be clear about that. Every single Democratic candidate who in the Democratic primary, when they were asked, would you pack the court? Joe Biden had a, some disagreements, but they all said they would. And they all said Every one of them said they wanted to get rid of the Electoral College. We never had that before. 
We've never had any discussion, serious discussion, as the Senate Majority Leader said the other day, that he wanted at Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. admitted. So what they want to do is clear. What they're going to be able to do depends on two senators. And there's going to be enormous pressure. you got to remember one other thing. We're talking about a solely political matter. But in this country right now, if you look at the traditional levers of influence and power, not numbers, but money, influence, reach, media, they all are progressive. The university, Hollywood, celebrity culture, Silicon Valley, professional sports and entertainment, etc. the media. So let's talk about the election of 2020. Uh, Joe Biden has a slim majority, as you mentioned, in both the Senate and in the House, maybe the slimmest of many past years. Um, But he did get the popular vote win by millions of votes, maybe seven, eight million votes. Um, And yes, there are some questions about how those votes were counted and how they were changed and whether it was constitutional uh, whether judges or administrators can change it during this unusual year of the pandemic. But he did get a lot of the popular vote, and looks like no matter how you would count it, he would have won the popular vote. Just like Trump won the presidency with the Electoral College but didn't win the popular vote. So give us your opinion on this idea of the popular vote should be the way we elect presidents. So as far as Joe Biden, you can say two things. I don't necessarily agree with, but a constitutionalist would say there is no such thing as a popular vote. It doesn't even exist in the Constitution under our system. Each state votes, and then their, their tallies are individual, and the way that they vote is individual. The times, except for the day of the actual election. As far as the seven, Donald Trump got more votes than any losing candidate in history. I don't think that there was enough irregularities to even question the vote. I'm not one of those people. I think that Joe Biden won. Okay, so you're not one of the conspiracy theorists that think everything was rigged, that there was enormous illegalities, that Trump really won the election. You're conceding that Biden won the election, no matter whether it's a popular vote or the Electoral College. But there were some irregularities and some changes that were of significance. And you have some unusual insights that I had not heard before. So tell our audience what your thinking is about the problems with the election of 2020. We have never in the history of the United States had 62% of the electorate not voting on election day. And when you have Mark Zuckerberg and Silicon people pouring $500 million into pre-selected precincts, which is pretty much illegal if you read statutory laws and saying, we're going to help this place in Pennsylvania, this place in Michigan, we're going to get drop boxes, we're going to get, we're going to have the state hire, pay the salaries, and it's only going to be for one purpose, to beat Donald Trump. You've got a problem. So what I'm getting at is if Donald Trump was right, the changes in election hurt him or lost in the election. It didn't happen on election day. It happened from February to May of 2020, when there were literally hundreds of bureaucratic decisions at the state level, executive decisions, gubernatorial decisions, and lawsuits to change the constitutionally mandated right of the legislature to make laws. And they were all done under the pretext of, oh my God, we're facing COVID. Nobody can go out of their home. You can't go to the polls. We've got to 
have drop boxes. We have to have early voting. We have to have all these mail-in. You cannot ask for an address. If the signature is not there, it won't matter. That's what happened. And the Democrats were much better at it than the Republicans were. I guess it's hard to talk about some of these state changes that went on without talking about the new laws that have been passed and the reaction and response from the Biden administration and contrast that with the Republicans on the changing laws in Georgia, as an example, maybe that's been the highest uh, commented on of all the states, but many other states have been making changes to uh, create from the Republican side a more secure election. On the Democratic side, they're saying, you know, it's it's uh, Jim Crow 2.0. So what's your, uh, what's your take on these new laws? There's two issues here. Has there been an effort de facto or in, in, as a result to suppress, say, black voting? The answer is no. 2008 and 2012, a higher number of African-American registered voters voted than did whites. How could that happen under a system of so-called Jim Crow? Number two, if you look at the days allowed to vote, the hours and the aggregate that are eligible in early voting, the rules that surround uh, IDs and mail-in voting, and you compare, let's take, for an example, two states. Delaware, that Joe Biden ran as a U.S. senator, basically his, his machine ran Delaware. And Colorado, which these corporations and the Major League Baseball executives said, uh, we have to move to. We have to move it from an all-black state where we had $100 million in revenue going in to mostly a lily-white state because this state is just past and restrictive. And you look point by point, you can make the argument that the Colorado voting law, like the Delaware, is more restrictive. So now we get in, why is this going on? And it's getting going on because uh, radical people in Georgia have been very successful in suggesting there's a racist climate. And out of that dialogue, they that frightens people. So, Professor, what do you say about these corporations that have jumped into the political fray like Delta Airlines and Coca-Cola, home base there in Georgia that... Um, took the side of the administration and the idea that this is voter suppression. What do you say to those companies? And so corporations who don't do anything on principle, they're in there to make money. They put their finger to the wind and they say, am I going to get more flack from the 72% of Democrats and Republicans who say that they want an ID, just like you have to get on a plane or cancer check or get a vaccination, or am I going to get more flack from the people who are 38%? And they, it's a no-brainer for them. Antifa, BLM, the universities, all the people we just talked about, they have more ability to uh, uh, pressure us than does the so-called silent 72. So this is what we're going to do. There's not going to be downside. We're going to be woke. We have a younger audience. Professor, you've given some really good ideas and expression of understanding why the corporations have sort of gone woke, if you will. Um, The other big entity that we hear about are the professional sports teams. What's your take on that? Let's be frank. If you look at revenues, domestic revenues of Major League Baseball, or you look at revenues of Major League uh, Basketball, NBA, they are flat, flat domestically. 
The NBA squared that circle by going to China and has a $5 billion franchising endorsement market now in China, where they're training a whole generation of Chinese, which they will be junked as soon as the Chinese master the system. But for now, it's very lucrative. They won't let anybody talk about China in the NBA. If you mention China, and a coach has done that in Texas, he's reprimanded. LeBron James won't say a thing. So how do they square that? They become woke and they're very left wing and they take a knee and they lecture and they take pictures themselves. But that's because it's an immediate exemption to justify that they're very illiberal. They are in bed with a country that destroyed Tibet and destroyed democracy in Hong Kong. It's got a million people in a re-education camp. Major League Baseball is doing the same thing. Their revenues are flat. Their audience is young. The old traditional uh, viewer is turned off by the politics, and they've made this decision that I don't need a 55-year-old white guy in Michigan to watch baseball. I've got uh, you know white people, if I can use that rubric, are now ba- ba- basically 58% of the, of the Major League Baseball 70% of the population, but underrepresented. NBA is 77% African-American. NFL football is, I think, 69%. That appeals to a younger, more diverse, multiracial ethnic crowd. That's our base. They're much more left-wing. We're going to appeal to them, and we're going to get Chinese money. And the more left-wing we sound here in the country, the more we get less flack for being right-wing overseas. And that's how we're going to survive this changing rubric because they have basically lost all of their traditional viewers. Their viewership has gone down, they're losing money, and they know it, and they've got this new paradigm. And that means they've got a virtue signal nonstop. And that's why it makes no sense, as I said, because the NBA doesn't, uh, the Major League Baseball doesn't care about this voting law. They're they're incoherent, uh, Faye Vincent, the former commission commissioner, wrote an op-ed today pointing out how silly his successor is. So it's it's a business decision. Same thing with Delta Airlines. How can a guy, Mr. whatever his name is, uh, $17 million a year? So if you do it by the working days of the year, he makes $68,000 a day. And he's lecturing in the United States that, Georgia is racist for requiring an ID, which you have to have to get on his airplane. And we're supposed to take that seriously as he, as he signed a multi-billion dollar deal to open up new routes to China. So it's a, it's a farce, but it's a clever farce. And it's, it's, it's driven and fueled by profit motives. Okay, so we know that in the 50 years that Biden's been around as a politician, he's done many things, has said many things, that were racist, that seemed to be ignored. And if that was his old history of Lunch Bucket Joe as the the moderate, uh, conservative moderate of the past, what happened to make him change to this radical uh, socialist that maybe we just didn't see coming? But what, what happened? What changed him? So then he made this radical change. And why did he do it? Because he was done for in February. His candidacy didn't, candidacy was zero. He came in sixth and I think Iowa and fourth in New Hampshire. And then we got to see Pete Buttigieg and we got to see Cory Booker and Kamala Harris and Bernie Sanders and the Democratic grandees, Silicon Valley, Wall Street, corporate world. They said, oh, my God, these are these guys could lose to Donald Trump. 
we need Joe Biden and bring him out because he has this conservative kind of controversial. So they brought him out. He won Nevada. The black folk helped him in the Carolinas, and he was the leader. Well, Professor, I want to hear more about your take on Joe Biden and this administration and the, the radicalization of the Democratic Party. But we got to take a quick break right now for commercial. We're going to come back. We're going to delve into these same ideas in very short order. Stay with us. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, and the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. Whether cruising the Strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the third segment of America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman again. And today we're talking to uh, Professor... Dr. Victor David Hansen, one of my very favorites. He has got a great way of explaining things, of being logical, of being an outside observer of history uh, in various different ways. So today we're talking to him about the Biden administration. And we left off the last segment talking about how um, Joe Biden has changed and become more radical. And we're now delving into the why did that happen? Because that had not been his history. It was Lunch bucket Joe, bucket Joe uh, good old Joe from uh, Delaware, who was sort of middle of the road, and they were able to sell that in the election. But that's not the way it turned out. It may not have been the way it was ultimately planned behind the scenes for the election. So let's go back uh, to Dr. Hansen, and let's find out a little bit more about how or why Joe Biden changed so dramatically from maybe what his own history was and whether or not he really believed in what he was doing or whether he was going along with the powers that be. So, Dr. Hansen, pick up from where we left off in the last segment, please. So he was repackaged. And here's where it gets interesting. So all of the observers on both sides said, well, he's good old Joe Biden, but he's old and he has cognitive, he's had two serious brain aneurysms and he's old. So the left is using him as an empty vessel to get him elected and all he's going to do. And I think what happened was Joe Biden said, do I really want to go up against these guys and fight them? They've got control of the media. They've got influence. They've got control of Silicon Valley. I don't want to fight them at 78 and maybe I can trump them. So when they bring this stuff, I'm going to take it as my own. I'm going to be bigger than Barack Obama. They're never going to say I was an understudy and I'm going to get done what Obama did. And you know what? If you read left-wing commentary, that's exactly what they're saying now. Barack Obama is being severely criticized for talking a good game, 
but good old Joe Biden's actually getting it done through executive orders and through the bully pulpit. And uh, he's going to be far more successful, they think, with a very narrow congressional majority than Barack Obama did with supermajority in the Senate and a huge majority in the House. Well, Professor, that's an interesting um, observation and one that sort of stacks up against the reality of what we see. Uh, But I don't think that Joe would just overrun and uh, overshadow Obama. Wouldn't Obama want to be involved and sort of take credit, at least behind the scenes, of having laid the foundation for um, what uh, Joe Biden is doing so that there is a... um, uh, a value to be shared across the Obamaites, if you will. How do you think the Obamas are actually involved with this whole movement under Joe Biden so that the Obamas can take credit for any of the uh, legislative achievements or advances towards a more progressive socialist slash even Marxist society uh, structure? I don't know to what degree the Obamas are guiding them, but they are the most vocal ex-presidents, ex-first couple we've ever seen, much more than George Bush or Laura Bush, uh, much more even than the Clintons. They weigh in all the time, and they've stocked that administration with a lot of Susan Rice and uh, a lot of the aides are uh, very prominent in the Obama administration, John Kerry, et cetera, and... uh, Jill Biden is very, I don't know to what degree Jill Biden is active, but she does, she seems to have a role that we have not seen in a long time, much more prominent even than Michelle Obama and Hillary Clinton. Well, Professor, Jill Biden certainly does seem to have a unique role from many of the other first ladies. From my mind, I look at it and I think of two examples. One may have been Nancy Reagan at the end, especially at the end of Ronald Reagan's term where she was jumping in and completing his sentences and whispering in his ear because he had started his mental decline. And to me, Jill Biden is doing the same thing with Joe. She knows of his cognitive decline, his inability to really address some of the issues or properly hear what's going on or be able to answer questions off the cuff. And I think she's playing that role much like, um, Nancy Reagan might have done at the end of uh, Ronald Reagan. The other is, and maybe it's an overstatement uh, to say maybe she's really taken a lot of control behind the scenes. That's the issue that I don't really know. And maybe you can comment even on that somewhere down the road here. Um, But like an Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, who was so influential uh, with with, uh, President um, uh, Franklin Roosevelt at the time. But I think maybe the more logical connection of what's going on is to Nancy Reagan. But let me change um, direction a little bit. And would you talk about the 2020 election and what your observations were about both the anticipation of the election uh, before COVID, uh, after COVID, and maybe some of the influences that were going on behind the scenes, because you're involved and connected to a lot of people, both on the West Coast, where you uh, live much of the time, and also you're teaching in the Midwest, and your travels around the country. So give us some of your thoughts and observations on what was really going on uh, with polling and other data and and data points of information that you may have come across uh, prior to the 2020 election. 
I had a lot of talks with people from the administration, and they were on the the impression that January, even though the liberal polls didn't suggest so, but there were enough polls, I think, the Harris-Harvard poll, the Rasmussen poll, and um, some of the more outlying polls that suggest that Donald Trump was going to get reelected. In January, we had record low uh, minority unemployment. 5.3 for African-Americans, lower for, for Hispanics. The general unemployment was 3.2. We were getting close to 2.8 GDP. We had record energy development. Everybody understood that. that and the, this is what was coming from Democrats. They didn't think they could beat him. And then when you looked at that field that was so hard left, it was polarizing. Had we had an election, and this can happen to any candidate if you pick an arbitrary, but Donald Trump would have been elected. So then we had the pandemic, and then we had the lockdown, and then we had the recession. And those were brilliantly recalibrated as the Trump recession, the Trump pandemic, and the Trump lockdown. Anybody who looked at the situation would have said, this has got all the ingredients of a tragic Western or a Sophoclean play because Donald Trump took a huge gamble. He bet on four different companies. He warped speed. Unlike the EU, he paid whatever they wanted. He helped cover their legal, everything. We got a vaccine in 10 months. And then he only one million vaccinations a month when he left after just five weeks. And then the economy's natural after this lockdown that he opposed, he went with it and it started to heat up again in the economy right when he left or right before the election, actually. And the lockdown was starting to crumble in Texas and Florida. So we said that I said to myself, to people that I talked to, I said, you better be very careful about this election because um, all of the hard work has been done and the downside is still there and the upside is going to come in November, December, January and Biden's going to take credit and you're not talking about it. You're not talking about your achievements, energy development board. What you are talking about is Joe Biden is senile. Joe Biden could be non-existent. He's in a basement and he's outsourced his campaign to Democratic operatives, the fusion media, Wall Street corporations and Silicon Valley and very sophisticated changes in the voting laws. And that's a very difficult. So why Trump was saying, look, at I've got 60,000 people out in Pennsylvania on a cold night. Look at Joe Biden. He's got 10 cars honking their approval. It didn't matter. This was the first virtual candidacy we'd ever seen. It was a virtual campaign. And it was outspent Donald Trump two and a half to one. If you look at what the Shorenstein Center had been warning people, and they were a liberal Harvard graduate program um, that monitors media coverage, 90% of mainstream media coverage, Reuters, CNN, it was negative Trump. And so what was happening is the Trump people had fooled themselves that the optics of these rallies and that Trump had done all this good stuff and everybody would remember pre-COVID, but we were not quite out. Had the election been held, as I said, in January 2020 or right now with this stuff happening, I think he would have won, but it wasn't. And so I, I, I did a lot of interviews on election day and I got a lot of criticism. I said, I don't know who's going to win the election, but I know Donald Trump's not going to win the popular vote. I didn't think he would.
I said the elect the electoral college, but the people who were interviewing you on talk radio or blogs or podcasts, they were convinced that Donald Trump was going to win by a landslide, especially when these last polls came in that showed him dead even or ahead. Some of them. Professor, it's great insight for our audience to understand um, your perspective on what happened during the election, how Joe Biden won. Um, and I like the analysis of what's happened um, uh, to change things with the pandemic, the lockdown and the recession, which were all sort of, you know, characterized as uh, Trump failures and listed as Trump, um, even though he didn't create the COVID, the Democrats better use the changing environment. Um, would you talk again a little bit more about um, the voting laws that changed and what's your um, perspective on that? And also what happened with somewhat... Um, you might say the swing, the um, suburban female vote out there and why that went so much for uh, Joe Biden more than we expected. Um, and and the impact of the Trump tweets, because if he was to come back, uh, he's not going to change. We'll see that again. But uh, how much um, uh, were his tweets and his personality affecting what the uh, voters really wanted in a president? I still don't know all of the ingredients, but my suspicion is that the voting laws helped uh, Biden. But even more importantly, uh, two things that had not been an issue in 2016, and they were about, you know, they could go either way. One was the swing voter. I would call them the suburban mom, soccer mom, or the professional white guy who makes 150000 and was bothered by talk of socialism in 2016 or hated the Clintons. They were tired of the Trump tweeting and the Trump disruption. And, the, you know, if, we, if you're going to attack Fauci, say Fauci's incompetent, but don't say he can't throw a baseball. That's it's irrelevant. Why do that? And that group turned him. And the never Trumpers remember that they had been written off as irrelevant because for all their animus in 2016, 92% of the Republicans voted for Donald Trump higher than Romney or McCain. And they did so again this election. But what people failed to see was it didn't matter. That was not enough. He got 96% of the Republicans. What he needed was that swing voter. And he lost 2 or 3%. And who were those three swing voters? They were moderates and former Republicans in spirit, not registered, who did Look at the Lincoln Project's $100 million of, you know, some of it was not all stolen and ads. They read Never Trump stuff. They read the National Review. And there was about 50 to 80 to 90,000 of them that did. It did make a difference. So it's not quite fair to say, oh, the Never Trumpers were irrelevant. They were in 2016. They were, again, for Republicans, but they were very relevant. And so was a sophisticated uh, Democratic plan to target people who were turned off by Donald Trump's uh, optics and communications. Professor, great observations. We're going to need to all know that as conservatives or Republicans in order to go into the next election to better understand what actually happened in the last election. We want the MAGA uh, agenda. We want the Trump policies. We just don't, in many ways, need the personality that went along with it to turn so many people off. Let's take another quick break, and we'll be back for a final session in just a minute. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your healthcare freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hey, folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember, folks, I'm not angry. I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the final segment of Healthcare Insight on America's Web Radio. We've been listening to um, questions and answers uh, from Dr. Uh, David Hansen, Victor David Hansen, who has been very insightful as a thought leader, as a historian, as a um, commentator on what's going on around us with the presidency and politics. Uh, you can listen to uh, many of the um, presentations by uh, Dr. Hansen if you just go to YouTube and Google his name or search for his name on um, on the website, um, on YouTube, and uh, you'll hear a lot of very um, uh, wise words of wisdom from him. Today, we're taking an interview that he had previously done, and we're adding to it and providing some commentary and focusing on certain aspects of that particular interview that he had with um, uh, a British uh, journalist at The Sun. So I want to continue with this, and I know we want to uh, focus on and have been focusing on sort of the the Biden administration, and then we've been talking about the Trump administration, especially in the last segment. Um, I want to sort of complete that Trump uh, discussion, uh, because I know many people in our audience are still uh, tied to and feel very connected to uh, Trump and the Trump presidency. So uh, Dr. Hansen, tell us a little bit more about what you think the Trump legacy will be. I know he's only been in there for four years, but he had an awfully big impact in many ways for many people. But as a historian, what do you think the Trump legacy will be if that's all that uh, we ever hear from him as president? You start with the idea that it's very hard for a president, uh, unless you're Lincoln and you're assassinated in the middle of the Civil War at the end of it, for a four-year legacy. It just doesn't happen. And, uh, so we got to remember that. Coolidge, remember, took over from Harding. So he had essentially six years. So you don't really, that's very hard. But I think there's going to be two areas where he will be considered a, 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 a very successful president. Number one is he recalibrated the dialogue, foreign policy, domestic policy, and the Republican Party to a populist. So the Republican Party, for good or evil, is not caricatured now as a bunch of old white guys on the golf course. 
They may be, but that's not their character. They're now charactered as, to use Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, and Barack Obama's language, it's clingers, deplorables, irredeemables, drags, chumps, and Neanderthals. And those are all pejoratives for what I would call the white working class of the Middle West. They can't win an election on their own, but they are 30 to 40 percent of the electorate, and they were neglected. About eight or nine million did not vote in 2008 or 12, and they cost Romney and, and McCain the election. Well, Professor Hansen, I will proudly put myself in that category, and I think many of us who believe in Trump policies may not have been in that uh, direct working class or the deplorables as I think the Democrats and Hillary Clinton tried to categorize people as being uh, very much at the lower end of the economic or educational spectrum. Uh, but a lot of us will hold that that title that they called us, which they thought was a negative title, as a badge of honor, saying that we are against the East and West Coast elite, that we are real Americans who believe in this country, believe in God, will cling to our guns and Bibles, as Obama said, and do it proudly and let them call us whatever names they want, as they did when they were trying to downgrade the uh, Tea Party in 2010. And having gone to those gatherings, I found to be regular Americans of electricians and plumbers and truck drivers, as well as professionals, uh, who just wanted this country to have better leadership, take us in a direction that would recognize the greatness of this country and our founding fathers and our founding documents. So that's what um, I will join in to that group. But tell us a little bit more about the Trump legacy uh, from your perspective. The $64,000 question was, was there ubiquitous presence enough to win him? Because they also turned off your Romney voter who said, I don't want anything to do with that guy in that monster truck with the American flag on it. You know, I'm more sophisticated and elegant, um, you know. So that, that's one thing he did. He changed the party into a populist party, and he tried to promote class rather than race. So if you think about it and prune out all the left-wing, right-wing propaganda, he got a higher number of African-American Hispanic votes than any other Republican, almost more Hispanic, I think, than George W. Bush the first time. But not enough to really make a fundamental difference, but nevertheless, it showed a trajectory. And what his message was is, hey, African-Americans, hey, Hispanics, hey, poor whites, you're all in the same boat. Fuel costs, your electricity costs, your taxes, and your unemployment rate, and employers will be begging for your job. And you can join a union. I have no problem with unions. I'm not like a traditional Republican. If you want to join a union, great. I love union people. I work with them in Manhattan. That was the message. And I'll reduce sentences for African-Americans. I will try to campaign with African-American people. I will tell Hispanics that you deep down inside want that wall more than I do. Because when you have illegal immigrants coming into your communities, they flood the schools, the English uh, has to be taught to them at the expense of advanced placement. Their gangs pick on your kids that don't speak Spanish. It's not good for you. That, that started to resonate. So that's an achievement. Professor, I think you're exactly right there. 
about how Trump has created a populist wing of the Republican Party and got away from the country club Republicans as their image. In fact, it seems like the Republicans and Democrats have almost switched uh, positions with the Democrats going after the high dollar Wall Street, um, Silicon Valley, Hollywood types, and Republicans are going after the uh, working man based upon Trump's realignment philosophy and um, and following. But what is the second thing that you mentioned that he accomplished that uh, may create the legacy for him? The other thing is, I think he will be considered um, as a, a successful president in foreign policy in this sense, that he really outsourced the, the mechanics and the nuts and bolts to a very capable, very controversial Secretary of State, uh, Mike Pompeo. And he, Mike Pompeo was the good cop and Trump was the bad cop. So Trump railed and, and threatened, and then Pompeo quickly came in and said to NATO, look, we're not going to end NATO. Don't listen to that. But listen here. You guys did never never paid your promise 2% of GDP to defend yourself. Your main threat is Islamic terrorism across the Mediterranean and Russia. And you better pay the 2% because if you don't, we're not an alliance. And only one or two of you are, Britain and Greece, I think, and maybe one of the Baltic nations. But it's now 100 million more. And everybody believes, except Germany, and people are not so entranced, uh, enthralled with Germany as they were in, in NATO, that you have to do that. And the, the alliance is much stronger. Second, in the Middle East, he said the Obama plan was to, uh, as much as they could figure it out, was to enhance Iran as the Persia, Persian, Shia, minority, marginalized, forget Hezbollah, forget Hamas, forget Syria and the Assads, just balance them off against the corrupt Gulf monarchies and put pressure on the right wing in Israel. This is a great tension. And Pompeo said, wait a minute, this is crazy. Israel's a Western country and there are moderates. And they started getting people to recognize Israel. And then they said the Palestinians are not the center of that problem. They're holding hostage 500 million Arabs for what is pretty much a corrupt government. And so we cut aid to the Palestinians, we bypassed them, and we started to make a deal, a de facto alliance, and there was stability. I think Biden will have trouble overturning it. And finally, and most importantly, he said, you Republicans and Wall Streeters, that you think that the more uh, concessions you give China, patent infringement, copyright, theft, technological appropriation, dumping, currency manipulation, huge surpluses, they become liberal and they look at that magnanimity to be reciprocated rather than to earn contempt by our weakness. That's over with. And we're going to be tough with China and they need us more than we need them. And for all this talk about we're done, they have 1.4 billion people. The United States has 330 million. They've got four plus times the population. Guess what? We still have almost twice as much conventional GDP as they do. The one American worker is producing twice the goods and services as four Chinese counterparts. Whether that's completely accurate or not, but that was his message. And it was one of confidence and we don't have to and try to get the Western world. And of course, the way Trump did it was with theatrics. And then Pompeo came in 
And Pompeo, who's running for president, I think did something else. He was trying to say this foreign policy is going to be based on domestic concerns of trade for the working class. We're not going to dump Chinese products. We're not going to outsource. So, Professor, I think it's a very astute observation. On the domestic side, what I'm hearing you say is the realignment of the political uh, parties uh, with the Republican Party becoming much more populist. And they may not be enough in the future to win an election. They're going to have to broaden that tent. And also, um, I think you didn't quite mention it, but I think because of the conservative economic policies uh, Trump put in, he shows that um, that conservative economics really works. On the foreign policy, the NATO improvements, the Middle East with the Abraham Accords, you didn't mention exactly the Abraham Accords, but I think you alluded to it. Uh, meant we were trying to get at peace in a much more effective way that seems to be uh, starting and is out there, and somebody will pick up on that in the future instead of the two-state and the constant conflicts and trying to pick sides between Israel and um, and the Palestinians. And then also the concerns about China, I think, will come forward. Um, but there were a lot of naysayers, especially on that foreign policy side, Um Talk about those naysayers and why the current foreign policy discussions of the Biden administration um, may be so much in error and that Trump was sort of on the right track. So when they despise them, we have to ask them, what was their contribution to American foreign policy the last 25 years? The brilliant Afghan war, the brilliant Iraq war. Was it a brilliant Chinese policy? Was it you tell me what worked. Was it the Libyan war? Was it the Syrian intervention? I can't think of much that the CIA or the State Department had gotten right the last 20 years. That's what got Trump elected. So, Professor, let's wrap up in the last minute or so and give us your thoughts on the 2024 presidential election and what might happen then with some of the new candidates coming on board and Donald Trump, the big uh, kahuna in the uh, room, uh, still going to be there. I think it's just gospel now that whatever person runs will run on a MAGA agenda. And that we had Nikki Haley, who was probably of all the candidates, the most charismatic and canny. Some like DeSantis have actually run something like a state. But, you know, Pompeo and Tom Cotton and Christy, no, they're all good candidates. But they have to, they have a a rendezvous with Donald Trump. So is there any way that we can tell Donald Trump why don't you be a senior statesman and help unite the party and go behind somebody who's, and I think that's what they're secretly thinking. Well, thank you, Professor. So there you have it, audience, from Victor David Hansen, a really wise individual with great perspective on American politics and history in general. I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope you'll tune in to some of his other presentations that you can find on YouTube. And I hope you'll come back and listen to more of Victor David Hansen and other wise individuals about American politics and American history. So join us again next week on America's Web Radio. We will see you uh, one week from today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.